Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Attacking Scrum podcast. Once again, it is time for a guest to join me and to choose their Dream 15. This week, it is Scrum 5 uh, presenter and, of course, presenter of Premier Sports, Ross Harris, and uh, making his second appearance on the show. We caught up with Ross last summer, and uh, he, was, he was great fun to chat to then, and He's got such a great knowledge of uh, not only Welsh rugby but world rugby that we thought he'd be a fantastic addition to to come on and pick his Dream 15. And so it proved great guy to chat to and, uh, yeah, very, very knowledgeable bloke too. So big thanks to Ross for coming on. Really enjoyed recording these and hope you've enjoyed listening to them too. And we've got some more great guests lined up for you. As I think I mentioned last week, Charlie Morgan will be joining us. That episode, it will be out next week. I've already recorded that one. And yeah, he's a great guy. Again, very knowledgeable on all areas of rugby. And uh, yeah, kind of fantastic analytical brain. He's a really good guy to chat to. So you'll hopefully enjoy that one too. And we're hoping to get Phil Davis on uh, soon as well, of course, uh, uh, former Athletic and Wales second row coach at Leeds, Cardiff and Clenethley. So, yeah, looking forward to, to chatting to Phil. Uh, as always, big thanks to our sponsors at So Coffee Trades. And if you want to get your hands on some great coffee and support a young Welsh business, you can do that at socoffeetrades.co.uk. Right, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Oh, good reverse pass, Jonathan Davis. There's that acceleration. Very, very quick. Back goes Derry White. The try is scored. Wonderful try by Davis. Can you believe it? Welcome to another episode of Dream 15 by the Attacking Scrum. Now, when we started doing these... uh, I thought there was one person who would do a particularly good job on it because not only is he a professional broadcaster, he is an encyclopedia of Welsh rugby, so much so that he's written an encyclopedia on Welsh rugby. And that is uh, making his second appearance on the attacking scrum. It's Ross Harris. How are you, Ross? I'm very well, thank you, Jed. Pleasure to be here. 
yeah it's well obviously sadly sadly we can't um we can't meet up face to face at the moment as we're recording these during lockdown but uh it has given us a chance to to create a few a few of these specials and as i said there in the intro uh we thought you'd be uh you'd be perfect for this given your uh given your extensive knowledge of uh of uh well not only welsh rugby but world rugby of course how did you find selecting your 15 Got a quite a troublesome task, actually, Jed. Um, I probably took it a lot more seriously than you intended me to, because um, <laughs> on the one hand, you you don't you want to you want to at least you know keep the illusion going that you know what you're talking about. Um, me, that is. Um, but also, uh, I, I wanted you know you very kindly mentioned the book there. I, I wanted to try and be as unbiased as possible as well, because. Uh, as is probably the case with you, you know, you tend towards your childhood heroes and uh, most of those in my case were Welsh. Um, so hopefully I've managed to uh, navigate my way through the sort of intrinsic bias as I hold in my mind and, and come up with something vaguely, vaguely impressive. Well, the, the beauty of this, Ross, is that it's, uh, is it's entirely your choice. So you can be as, as biased or uh, as, as unbiased <laughs> and as objective as you like. And speaking as a man who picked... Rod Snow over Gethin Jenkins and Matthew Morgan over Barry John. Uh, I, I feel like I can say that, but I'm very much looking forward to, to hearing who, uh, who's made the cut for you. Um, I take it you want to start in the forwards? Matthew Morgan over, over Barry John is bold, mate. I will give you that. That is bold. <laughs> it's, it's about, as left field and maverick as, as they come. It's about favourites. And I tell you what, if, if Matthew Morgan had played in, in those, uh, you know, in the, in the 70s era, uh, I can, it, you know, those comparisons only get given one way, don't they? Oh, how would Barry John fare against modern defences? Imagine what Matthew Morgan would have done for seventies defences. Just imagine Very true. That for a moment. He just got. Uh, and the only thing he gets criticised for, yeah, he, he gets criticised for his defence, doesn't he? But Barry John never made a tackle in his career, so right. you're absolutely right. There we go. There we go. I'll, I'll, I'll stick to my guns on that one. Um, it was it was a bit awkward when we had James Hook on last week, and I said uh, I, I, I explained the same thing and said oh, I probably should have told you that I picked uh, I picked you over Barry John, but I didn't, of course. Let's uh, let's get stuck into the forwards, though. What about uh, yeah? Let's, let's start with Lucid, the number one shirt. Uh, what what were the, the choices for uh, for Lucid? Well, I mean, you mentioned Mellon. You know, um, who was the most capped Welshman of all time until Alan Wynn recently overtook him. Um, Phenomenal rugby player, but but the obvious choice. So I, I too clear, steered clear of um, of Gethin Jenkins, and really there was only one other contender for me. And this is a very personal choice. Um, I must declare an interest here because he is um, a relative of mine. Mm. Um, Barry Flewellyn is my oh, loose head yeah. prop, uh, a member of the 1971 Grand Slam winning side. Um, a player who was actually invited to go on the Lions tour that year, you know, the famous mm. tour to New Zealand, the only victorious Lions um, series winning team in New Zealand. And he turned it down. He was actually um, managing, he just set up a, a, a sports shop in Tembe. There was eventually three branches of it and uh, he was sort of a aspiring entrepreneur. So he, he couldn't afford to be away for, what, what were Lions tours then? Like two years oh, or something. Two years, from. exactly, yeah. So, um, so he turned down what was the most iconic Lions tour of the post-war era. Um, so he could have been an even bigger legend, but 
as I say, he's he's my mother's cousin, so I'm it's it's um, a bit of nepotism going on here. But he's one of those players whose name rarely ever gets mentioned in the context of the seventies heroes. You know, we all talk about the Barrys, the Gareths, the Bennies, the JPRs, the JJs, uh, the, the backs essentially, plus Mervis who have often gets a look into the the Ponypool front row. Well, exactly, but, that's it. And when it comes to the front the front row, it's always the Ponypool front row. And and you're quite right; it's it's an oft overlooked name there. Yeah, very much so. And if you meet him, you'd understand why. You know, he's a very shy, reserved sort of guy. Um, keeps himself to himself. You know, he's not sort of on the after dinner circuit like a lot of the guys are. But he's he's very, very highly rated by those who played with him. Um, you know, Gareth Edwards. Um, I'll pick that name up off the floor. Gareth Edwards once told me. <laughs> That um, the the Barry was the prototype modern prop. You know, we we often hear Geth and Jenkins described in those terms. You know, that someone who could scrummage, mm. lift, do all the the nuts and bolts, but also affect turnovers, make as many tackles as as a back row forward, and and carry the ball. And and in Gethin's case, charge Irish flyoffs down and score tries as well. But Barry was was doing that in the seventies. You know, he he had this sort of. Um, trademark move where he'd peel off the back of a line out and I think it was Gareth himself who described his action his sort of running action as like that of a racehorse and once he got into his stride you, sh- you could not stop him and they scored so many tries that way for Finnethley and for Wales um, but the one th- the one quote that always stuck with me um, and it's in Behind the Dragon if I can put another unsubtle plug in there for the book um, Bar- <laughs> Barry John you know, someone who a lot of people consider to be um, a little bit aloof, and, and some people think he's arrogant. But in my experience, he's always been anything but. Um, and he said to me when he was discussing those great wins, you know, that he was part of in the late sixties and, and early seventies, he said it was all down to the forwards. And when he went to the grog shop in Pontypridd at the height of his fame. John, who ran the grog shop, said to him, take anything you want, pick you know, pick one thing, it's yours, I'm not going to charge you. And there was about 50 or 60 Barry Johns in the grog shop. Um, so he fully expected him to just pick a grog of himself. But Barry looked around the entire shop, and the one thing he insisted on having was the front row lineup of Barry, Llewellyn, Jeff Young, and Denzel Williams. So the front row that effectively preceded the Pontypool front row. And that's the one piece of rugby memorabilia he says he still has out on display. And it's at the end of his bed. So he sees it when he wakes up every morning. So my attitude is, if Barry Thwellin's good enough for Barry John, then he's certainly good enough to get in my first 15. Oh, I absolutely love that. And you're, you're quite right there. It says it all, really, isn't it? You know, you think of all the... It's it's quite the it's quite the gesture. I know it, I know it's a very kind of uniquely uh, uniquely Welsh thing, grogs, and it's it almost seems a bit you know um, not silly, but you know it's a, it's a very it's a very fun thing. But actually, there's something quite uh, there's something quite touching about the fact that it, that he chose a front row, and I think that that says a great deal. Yeah, love that. You know, like I say, a lot of people perceive Barry John to be, you know, all all about the glory and all about himself. But I just thought that was a very humble thing to say you know that that his genius was effectively down to the fact that you had this grizzled gnarly pack of forwards several of whom were completely you know uncelebrated in the grand scheme of things providing him with the ball and the platform for him to weave his magic that's beautiful right well Barry Flewellen at one it is
So let's uh, let's move on to Hooker. So Hooker again, quite a few contenders, but I've I've gone for um, Uncle Fester, the raging Irishman Keith Wood, uh, largely because of his heroics on the '97 Lions tour. I mean, he was he was magnificent for Ireland. Uh, as you know, and and I just thought on that Lions tour, as part of a, a completely unfancied, mobile, smallish front row, along with Tom Smith and Wallace, uh, he just transformed the way that series unfolded. You know, everyone talks about the Jerry Guscott drop goal and, and Scott Gibbs' man of the series uh, performance, but the selection of that front row was, was bold in the extreme when you consider and they were coming up against monsters like Oz Duran to they were conceding several stones and several inches in height to and I just thought you know his, his industry his effervescence his attitude to the game was was brilliant and, and just one of rugby's great characters as well I think that uh, I, I'm sure you're the same as me Ross but that tour holds a particularly special place in in people's hearts in no small part down to living with the Lions as well, because I think you've got to see, you know, you and obviously Keith Wood's antics on there, you know, great, obviously a great lad on tour, but you got to see the emotion behind everything. And um, you saw what a, a hugely influential character he was on and off the pitch and just, just what a, a fantastic leader he was. You know, he wasn't captain in the side, but was every inch the leader that you need to go and win a tour in South Africa. Yeah, it, absolutely. And you're right, he wasn't captaining the side, but he had a, a leader's presence. You know, he was one of the, the leaders, the most vocal guys on that tour. And yeah, just just a, a great bloke. You know, I, I, there's a personal reason for this as well. It, the first time I um, I presented Ireland against Wales um, on the BBC from the Aviva Stadium, he was the pundit that day alongside Jiffy. And it was the first time I'd done a gig from the Aviva Stadium. So I didn't know my way around like, you know, I do around the Welsh stadiums. And um, I think I'd been in Athlone on the Friday night doing the under-20s. I had to fly back straight after the test match on the Saturday to do Scrum 5 on the Sunday. So my head was kind of all scrambled and I was trying to get my head around three different programs and three different running orders and stuff. And uh, he was just the perfect gent to me that day. You know, he, he showed me around the stadium, showed me where the tunnel was and where our position was and he was just so calm and collected and a perfect gentleman so uh, from a personal point of view I got a lot of time for Keith Wood as well as just admiring him as a rugby player growing up yeah I think that that always goes a long way the other thing I would um, say you you know with a with a lion's hat on and this this I think is overlooked because the series that followed South Africa was was obviously a lot tougher but he was completely phenomenal in Australia four years later. To, in fact, I think dropping a goal himself, if memory serves me correctly. Yeah, he, he was tremendous, wasn't he, in that series. Him and Tom Smith actually did yeah. those two tours, didn't they? Backed up. And, and I think Tom Smith certainly played six tests in a row, um, which was a phenomenal feat. You know, we talk about people like Graham Price and Willie John McBride and, and the amount of tests they chalked up and Alan Wynn is the modern equivalent. But uh, yeah, you know, for those two to back up and go on those two tough tours, you know, within four years of one another, a real testament to their their durability. Oh, absolutely. Right. Uh, who's, uh, who's in the running to complete the front row then? Well, it probably won't surprise you um, to hear <laughs> that uh, I'm, I'm going for the bomb, the big man. 
Um, is, there another, is there another book to plug here as well, Ross? <laughs> um, well, now you mentioned it, you know, I wasn't going to bring it up. But uh, yeah, I, I worked with Adam on, on his autobiography, Adam Jones, uh, a few years back. And I, and I had great fun doing it because he's, he's a fantastic bloke. He's a, he's a good mate of mine. And, um, you know, again, one of rugby's great characters, very droll, very dry um, you know, a lot brighter than people perhaps realise. So we had we had great fun, you know, putting that book together. And uh, you know, he's, he's got a fantastic story to tell. He's, he's a fly half trapped in a tight head props body. Um, what one piece of trivia that always amazes people whenever I bring this up is that he is the um, reigning points um, top point scorer for points in a single game for Abercrave, his village club. Because when he was growing up, he was the place kicker. Um, and it's something ridiculous, like 27 points in a cup game. Um, and he told me that with a straight face. And I, I, my immediate reaction was, yeah, whatever. But it is true. You know, check with the club and he is the reigning top point scorer. Um, but, you know, far and away beyond that, he, he proved himself to be after, let's face it, you know, some challenges in that Wales jersey when Steve Hansen was subbing him off after 30 minutes and he had, you know, a fairly well-publicised battle with his weight and that was you know, we dedicated a whole chapter of, of the book to that because it was a defining part of his his career um but then to move away from that to that period you know when he was literally the cornerstone of that welsh pack you know won three grand slams um you know there aren't there at that point there were only six welsh plays in history to have won three grand slams um and three of them were gareth gerald and jpr mm. so he's in Pretty esteemed company there. Um, so once he got that three jersey and made it his own, he could not be budged. And until they changed the scrummaging laws, he was, you know, probably the world's best at that hit and chase scrummaging technique. And he destroyed so many loose heads in during that period. Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, he's he is the complete package when you're selecting a side like this because he's brought so much joy. Uh, he's brought so much joy to Welsh rugby fans with his performances in a red jersey. Again, if you're an Ospreys fan or a you know or a you know even even a Cardiff fan, actually, you know he's putting some monster performances in in all of those shirts. But he's got the character that goes with it to you know if this is if this is kind of like Desert Island Discs because that's quite obviously where I stole the idea from. Um, <laughs> then he's Never of it <laughs> he's he's your he's your Beethoven's fifth isn't he you know he's, he's your absolute <laughs> gimme that it's so hard it's so hard to look beyond him because he's just uh yeah an all-time great and probably the first time he's ever been compared to a Beethoven concerto so uh combining you know highfalutin intellect there with with rugby knowledge there we go that's uh that's that's Adam Jones to a T right let's let's move on to the uh uh to the engine room and uh what are we looking at in the second row? Well, I, I think rugby purists and, and maybe all forwards are going to hate me for this because I've picked a very maverick boiler room. Um, but it's my team, isn't it, Jed? So uh, I'm, your, I'm entitled to do what I want. It's your team, so, but I will say, if Chris Wyatt doesn't feature, then it's going to be uproar. <laughs> Have you been? Have you been looking at my my word document yet? No, I've not. But I, uh, I I do remember obviously having uh, having having read the book and the chat we had. Oh, we that. did, um, we did, didn't we? The I, one I man. Ro- the, I, I could see the look in your eyes when you talked about the one man riot. <laughs> well, you're absolutely right. The one man riot was one of the first names on my team sheet, and and if he wasn't 
if he wasn't going down on it anyway, he certainly would have after the weekend because for those listening to this who live in Wales, um, BBC Wales showed the 99 Wembley win against England on the weekend in in all its glory. And uh, so I watched that um, in it, again in its entirety. And, uh, it's, you know, everyone th- remembers Scott Gibbs, obviously, and, and the Rodber Challenge on Chavez and, and all those critical moments and the Neil Jenkins conversion when the whole stadium went silent and all those kind of, you know, iconic, historic moments. But what I'd forgotten was just how good Chris Wyatt was in that game. He was an absolute beast, you know, doing all the things that we we know he was capable of such an athletic line out jumper so quick you know he played sevens he was he was quick enough to be uh, in, in sevens rugby but also there was one play that just summarized it for me jo- johnny wilkinson in full flight heading towards the try line and wyatt hunted him down full reach scragged him brought him to ground so, you know one of those perfect tackles slid down arms around the legs brought him to ground straight back up on his feet round through the gate and forced the turnover won a penalty so in the space of what must have been what five six seconds he did everything right in in one fluid movement and i just thought you know for all the off-field reasons he's getting in my team on the field he was an absolute beast of a player and it still beggars belief looking back that he never got to go on a lion's tour unbelievable it does and I, and I don't know off the top of my head how many caps you might you might know this ross but it felt like for you know because we'd it'd been such a, a troublesome position for wales and particularly at line out time you know for such a long period of time and then chris wyatt came along and seemed to solve those problems in the early graham henry era and yeah. he, you know, he, he's, oh, I don't know, I, I'd say what, it's about 30 odd caps he has for Wales. I don't know, it, it may be more, but um, it, it was, yeah, just, I, th- I, I would say, he, he, you know, he could have, it felt like he could have been a hundred capper, you know, if, if things had been slightly different. And I do include yeah. the, the off the field stuff in that perhaps. Yeah, genius. I mean, you know, if, if this, if this team's going on tour, um, you need good tourists. And I think in, in Keith Wood, and, and certainly in the one-man right, we've got some very good tourists already in this pack. So, uh, yeah, he'd probably be picked on that alone. Um, and as I think we discussed on the last time, you know, he used to rock up to the Vale when Wales first started using the Vale as their training base. Everyone else would turn up with their, you know, a couple of wheelie suitcases with weeks' worth of provisions and clothes. He would turn up with a used Tesco carrier bag with two bottles of full-fat Coke and uh, about 60 cigarettes, and that was it. Nothing, not uh, even pants. Just expected the kit man to, uh, to sort his pants out for him. And uh, the, uh, the cigarettes in question were menthol, though, to be fair to him, weren't they? Fitness facts. Fitness facts. It. That is absolutely superb. Uh, well, yeah, look, I, 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 um, I, I cannot disagree with that. Chris, Chris Wyatt was nailed on. Tell us, uh, tell us who'll be uh, joining him in the second row. Okay, well, I've given Wyatt the five jersey. Um, so in the four jersey, it is uh, the one, the only, Leone Nakarawa. Um, and as I said, the purists will hate this because you've pretty much got... You haven't, there's no enforcer there. There's no bruiser. I've picked two... Playmakers to athletes, um, you know, guys who like to run with the ball in their hand, guys, certainly in Nakarawa's case, who love the offload. So uh, it's a very attack-minded, athletic 
second row. Um, but I'm going with it. You know, we we got a, we got a solid platform in the front row there. Three very good scrummaging forwards. So I'm, I'm allowing myself the luxury of a couple of ballers in the engine room. Well, I think you've got that, but also I, th- I think Wyatt had um, a certain degree of uh, a certain degree of grunt about him, as well as being, you know, as well as having True. the athletic stuff, and particularly, you know, kind of particularly in his thirty. I was going to say towards the end of his career, but in his thirties, he still played for another ten years after that. Um, so yeah, I, I think Wyatt has a you know a bit of underrated grit in there. But yeah, Nakarawa, I mean, a uh, in a, in an era where we kind of. Um, Look back longingly at uh, at previous uh, at previous generations for for the entertainment factor. Nakarawa is pure box office, isn't he? It doesn't matter what number he's got on his back. Totally. Uh, like I, I was actually up at um, in Manchester uh, for the the last round of the Heineken Cup this year for uh, Sale against Glasgow, and it was his first game back for Glasgow <laughs> after he'd returned early from his uh, his. French sojourn and um, people were wondering, you know, whether he was going to fit back into the Glasgow fold or whether he'd take a little while to get back into the rhythm of, of that style of rugby. And I'm, I'm pro- I might be remembering it wrong, but he certainly scored a try and it seemed to be within moments of him coming on the pitch. And it was just one of those moments you, where you, you realise class is permanent. You know, this guy was a, an absolute hero in Glasgow before he left and he's just come back and slotted right back in like he's never been away um, and yeah he's, he is just a joy to watch isn't it it's a cliche but see a guy what is he six foot seven you know with that massive goose step and those ludicrous offloads you know not just kind of out the back of his hand in the tackle but basketball style over the the top and round the back and we actually did we had um, Ben Ryan on um, as a regular scrum five guest during the World Cup and we did, because um, BBC didn't have the rights, we couldn't show the highlights because it was ITV's um, rights. So we had to come up with inventive ways of of getting around that. And we sort of followed the old fantasy football model of, of reenactments for a while. And, and Ben Ryan did a offloading masterclass where we used some academy kids from a, a local team. And he just talked us through some of the offloads in Nakarawa's repertoire. And it made you realize, you know, it's not just one skill in your locker. They're, they're, they're all very different types of pass in different circumstances. You know, when you're, you're on the attack, when you're on the retreat, all different kinds of stuff. And there's almost a science behind it. And seeing someone who'd coached him, you know, in sevens explain or try to explain the genius of Nakarawa was really sort of enlightening. And uh, and you're quite right, you know, Ben Ryan will have seen all of those geniuses uh, across the years as well, wouldn't he? You know, he's, uh, I'm not saying that they're 10 a penny in Fiji, but the natural or the, the perceived natural ball skills that everyone has, you know, the, the fact that, uh, that Nakarawa stands out in amongst that, again, is testament to just what a, a terrific footballer he is. Superb, absolutely superb. Fantastic. Right, let's move on to the back row, six, seven and eight. Um, You've spoken about going for two Mavericks in the second row. Are we looking for a bit more of a balance in the back row? Well, I'd like to think this is a balanced back row, but there's there's no shortage of Mavericks in this one either. Um, Number six, uh, I little think about this, and there were a few contenders, but I I kept going back to this one guy, who I could not leave out, and that's Mark Perigo. 
another bona fide maverick legend of the game. You know why. Um, but, you know, if we talk about the duties of a number six, you know, if you want a, a, an old-fashioned destructive number six, they didn't come any more so than, than Mark Perigord. You know, rampaging around like a mad bulldog, just smashing people into the ground. You know, one of, one of the most terrifying tacklers I've ever seen. And, and a complete head case on and off the pitch as well so brilliant personality and uh, yeah he's he was straight in at number six for me well yeah and uh, you're quite right of course in number sixes you quite like to have a, a tree chopper in there Mark Perigo a man who famously quite happily trained with an axe in his hand so uh, that's probably quite <laughs> fitting there yeah and you're not the first person to pick him either actually that's uh yeah he's, he's certainly a oh really a, yeah so, so Dan our, uh, our regular co-host who was the very first person to pick his side picked Mark Perigo and picked him as his captain as well. And I, I, wow. I, I pay good money to hear a Mark Perigo team talk. That is, um, that is some degree of hero worship to have him as your captain as well. He'd surely be too, too maverick to be a captain. I think I remember, um, I think it was Scott Quinnell or Gareth Llewellyn though, who told me that he, um, when Alan Davis came in to um, coach Wales, he brought in psychometric testing <laughs> And all of the players had to do a psychometric test. And they all came back and they were mainly, they showed a graph. And they were all kind of clustered in the same sort of area. You know, there'd be minor variations in people's personalities. But by and large, they were all of a relatively similar personality type. So there were about 35 dots all loosely in the same part of the graph. And then there was just one random dot out on its own, nowhere near anyone else in the kind of area reserved for, you know, psychopaths and serial killers. And that apparently was Mark Perigo. I wouldn't want it. I wouldn't so, want it any other way. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly the part of the, the spectrum I'd like him to be on. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I think unique is the word, isn't it? It certainly is. Right. Uh, what, about, uh, what about open side then? Well, see, this this is one where I could have easily given in to um, sort of nationalistic leanings or patriotic leanings because there's so many amazing Welsh ones, aren't there? You know, and, and Sam Warburton, nothing needs to be said about his achievements. You know, double Lions captain, Grand Slam winner, championship winner, um, and and the kind of bloke as well who, you know, I find this really impressive. He hasn't changed a bit. You know, I've seen other other players whose personalities have have changed, they become more withdrawn uh, when they get the responsibility of captaincy and, you know, the scrutiny that comes with it. And often they're scarred by the negative experiences, but, you know, he hasn't changed one bit from the first time I met him as a sort of fairly callow but determined 18-year-old right through to the the present day. Um, Nugget's another, you know, probably more my generation um, you know, and, and a colleague of mine for years as well. So, uh, you know, he's, he's a good mate and, and was a phenomenal player. Well, I just thought I'd be accused of, of, of lazy selection. So while those two, you know, are definitely in the wider squad, I've gone for um, another total maverick um, in Josh Cromfeld. Oh, yes, the, what a uh, choice. The, the blues harmonica playing surfer dude, you know, again, square peg in a round hole. And the kind of guy... I, I just loved him because he, you looked at him and you, you almost didn't think he'd be a rugby player. It was almost like you couldn't imagine him training en masse with everyone else because that's not the way he seemed to live his life. You know, he just lived, he seemed to live on the margins. And I just imagined him spending all his pl- spare time surfing, 
playing harmonica and guitar on the campfire and then just bowling up at the game with an hour to spare and be a man of the match every week. So in, in my mind, that's how Josh Cronfeld lived his life. Of course he didn't, but uh, that's, 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 how, you know, that's, that's the reason I select him in this position. Yet another maverick in my increasingly maverick-looking pack. Ross, I have to say, I, I had no idea about this uh, this whole surfing blues harmonica side to him. Is uh, I mean, is, is this is this kind of well documented? Well, it's funny, right? I I went to um, I went travelling in New Zealand years and years ago with a mate of mine, and we we bought a van, like a, a clapped out old panel van in Auckland, and we just drove it. We effectively drove it into the ground until the thing clapped out, but. Um, we got way down south of the South Island and it was um, a Targo against Christchurch in the Ramfurly Shield. And it was Josh Cromfell's last game. And it was the, the Jade Stadium, as it was called then. And so we, we, me and my mate had to go along. And everywhere I went in, it was either Dunedin or Invercargill, but that whole, you know, Otago Highlanders region, he was everywhere. He was the poster boy, you know, shop windows, advertising, sunglasses. He was on posters, billboards, lampposts, everywhere. He just was the golden child of that regional. I don't think he was even from, I think he was from Auckland originally, but he became their adopted son. And for me at the time, as a kind of, you know, long-haired, carefree backpacker, something about his image just chimed with the way we were living our lives. And uh, so I just, I, I became fascinated by him. And we went to that game at uh, Jay Stadium and he was phenomenal that day. And, and as such, from that point onwards, I've always been a Highlanders fan or an Otago fan. You know, I bought the jersey after watching that game. And, uh, you know, that's always been my my Kiwi team. So, uh, so yeah, Josh Kronfeld, I, I met him actually on the, on the Lions Tour 2017. And it was one of those weird moments where, that you know, I was, I, I, I'm so used to dealing with and working with rugby players in my job that I don't have that same star, you know, that presence of of, of people. I'm not, I'm not so starstruck. Um, but I've, it's happened a couple of times to me. One was was Joan Alamo, and and the other was Josh Cromfield. I, I really had to. So going to work hard to hold it together and, and try and appear cool. When it went inside, I was just like desperate for his autograph. That's superb. I absolutely love it. And a great choice and a, and a truly wonderful player as well. I, uh, I, I remember watching that Rugby World Cup in 95 as a 10-year-old. And at that point, you know, when you're first into rugby, you're only really interested in what the backs are doing, or certainly I was. And then mm. I, just, I just remember watching this guy, you know, with his... Uh, with his bald head covered in a scrum cap. But I was like, wherever Lomi was, Cromfelt was on his shoulder every single mm. time. And uh, I remember being kind of fascinated by him. Then. T- truly magnificent player. Right, I, I, I love the fact you've, you've gone Maverick in the back row as well. I, I can only dream who you're going to pick at eight. Please say it's Andy Powell. <laughs> oh, hang on. I've missed a trick here, haven't I? Because <laughs> Powley, and, you know, I, I, growing up in mid-Wales as I did... Powley would be a contender because he's you know he's a Mid Wales boy and I like to like to big up the Mid Walesians when I get a chance because they don't get that much publicity. That, that's another reason why Dan Liddy would have been a a strong contender at, at number six. Yeah. Um, but number eight, weirdly, right, was probably the area where I had the most difficulty. Um, 
because there were loads of contenders for this. Um, we talked about Ben Ryan earlier and, and Nakarawa. I was sorely tempted to stick Bill Matter in there um, for similar reasons, but I think I've got my sort of loose Fijian offload specialist. I can't. I, I can't have the luxury of two. Um, Scott Quinnell was a strong, strong contender, especially given the link up with Perigo and, and Wyatt there in the pack, um, as was Talupe Falatau for obvious reasons. But I, I tried to steer away from a Welsh choice just because I didn't want to be too obvious. Um, and I've gone for Buck Shelford. Oh, yes. The, the hard man, the built from granite. And it's, I, I, you talked about you know your formative memories watching Josh Cromfeld in that World Cup. I remember the 87 World Cup, the first World Cup. I was 10 then, actually. And it was it was like three or four in the morning, the games were on. My dad insisted I watched them, so he'd, he'd wake me up with half an hour to spare, you know, to, to make sure I was alert and, and ready. And I always remember the semi-final. You know, Wales had, had beaten England in the quarterfinal, get to the semi-final. And at this point, I just thought, we were going to win the World Cup. You know, I had no idea of the history and, and what was what was still to come. Um, and I remember getting up for that New Zealand game and I'd never seen the hacker before. And so it was, it was almost this spooky you know, 3 a.m. twilight period, just me and my dad up, no one else awake, sitting there drinking Horlicks and the hacker began. And I was utterly spellbound. It, it was like something from from a movie, you know, I, I was like, what, what is this? And these guys looked so fearsome. And it was led by that man, Wayne Shelford. And you've only got to look back to prior to the, to the Shelford era, when the hacker had become so emasculated, it, it was almost embarrassing to watch, you know, because all, all the, the non-Maori guys in the team who'd never bothered to actually learn it, it just looked like... It, you know, it, it, ridiculous. And Shelford came along and said, no, this is our heritage. This means something. We are going to do this properly and, and do it justice. And he was terrifying. He just looked superhuman. And as you know, New Zealand absolutely blew Wales away that day. You know, it was nearly stuck 50-odd point Wales, 49-3 or whatever it was, absolutely annihilated them. And it was a real eye-opener for me. Oh my God! You know this team on the other side of the world are something else, and it's pretty much been the case ever since. They've lost their mystique because, you know, that, as I say, that was the first time I'd seen them or heard of them, and of course now with Sky Television and everything that's followed, they they come over to our shores virtually every year. But back then, it was it was absolutely spellbinding to watch. So, yeah, Wayne Shelford for me for those reasons gets in that back row. Yeah, again, like you say, a player before my time, but uh, someone who I, I've, you talk about kind of New Zealand having this this mystique and I still I still find it now. It's one of my favourite things to, after a test match against the All Blacks, I'm always happy to speak to New Zealand rugby fans and mm. I just find they're the most, I think particularly with Welsh fans, there is this kind of kindred spirit shit type thing that that exists and um they're so interesting to, to 
to speak to. And, you know, you'll, you'll be, like you say, there, there are always score lines like that where we've been blown away 37 points to 10 or whatever. And, you know, you'll chat to some New Zealanders and say, oh, no, yeah, I thought you guys give us a, you, I thought you were in for, a, in for the win today. It's like, no, no, you didn't think that at any point, but thank you for saying it. And when you get into that, I've never met anyone who, doesn't mention Buck Shelford at some point because he's just mm. that kind of, you know, before Lomu did the the real um, first global superstar of world rugby, you had old school rugby heroes. And I, I think in New Zealand, they don't come much bigger than Buck Shelford. Yeah, he is. He's iconic, isn't he? Almost like a sort of Colin Meads, Willie yeah. John McBride type figure. There's almost something mythical about him. Right? You know, he came over to this side of the world and coach Saracens for a while, you know, so he's, he's well-traveled as well, but um, yeah, there was something about his presence, uh, you know, and his, his leadership that he was just unbelievable. And his bravery as well, you know, famously had his scrotum ripped in half and, yeah. and played off. So you can't, you can't argue with the, the desire and the, just the bravery of a bloke who, who goes through that, you know, his, his pain threshold is clearly, higher than anyone's I've ever come across. I think a torn scrotum is the perfect time to take a break, Ross. Uh, <laughs> fantastic, uh, fantastic pack filled with hard nuts and, uh, and mavericks. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the backs have in order. And we'll find out uh, exactly who that will be after this very quick break. Time now, Ross, for you to take a look at uh, at the back line. Uh, it's a thoroughly entertaining uh, walk through the forwards. But uh, talk us through uh, who was in the running for the halfbacks. Again, Jed, it's, it's difficult to look beyond your kind of Welsh childhood heroes because, again, like Seven, we've been blessed with so many quality nines over the years. You know, the likes of Gareth Edwards, obviously, Brynmore Williams, Chico Hopkins, um, like you know, I include Rupert Moon in there. Not mm. by no means your classic scrum half, but so crucial to that. Thinethi, you know, I grew up watching Thinethi on the terraces at Stradley Park, and he he was so critical as captain to that side that won the double and beat the Wallabies mm. in the ninety two ninety three season. You know, his his personality larger than life, um, and that brilliant partnership with Colin Stevens. So I'd include him in there, even though he's not your sort of your classic purist scrum half, but. Um, the one who, who definitely has it for me, and we go back to that 87 World Cup era we were just talking about, Robert Jones. Legend of a bloke, legend of a player. Um, and he, it was in an era where, you know, Di Bishop was considered one of the best scrum halves in the world who wasn't getting a sniff in Wales because his face didn't fit. And there was definitely people up at Pontypool and in the Gwent Valleys who thought he should have been playing at nine for Wales. But for me, you couldn't argue with Robert Jones, you know, a real classic scrum half, beautiful, crisp pass off either hand. Uh, and just one of the most skillful players, you know, worked so hard at his game. A friend of mine was a Swansea supporter and he used to go down and, just watching warming up and practicing his passing, rifling balls off both hands, you know, and the target would often be miles away. The accuracy and the slickness of that pass were phenomenal. And he played in a, in a Welsh back line of that era that had so many talented footballers in it. Um, and again, a bit like I mentioned Nugget earlier, um, he was he's become a good mate of mine just because we worked together so much during Scrum 5. And he, and he has a fantastic bloke great company off the pitch 
great to have a, a pint with and share a few stories. And, and yeah, he was in. It was an easy choice, really. Yeah, again, it's it's very interesting with Rob Jones that, um, like you say, that that kind of that eighties era side that. Uh, you know, huge chunks of that back line went to play. Uh, well, actually, huge chunks of that side went to play league, and the, and what was a very promising side became, you know, became somewhat decimated. And he played for such a long period of time, Rob Jones, didn't he? And he, he saw kind of all kinds of changes outside him, and all kinds of changes in the management. But he was always very much a, a dependable figure within that. And like you say, a classic scrum half, great service, and uh, uh, you know, actually, quite his kicking game was something that. Um, that would be very in keeping with the modern era. You know, that, that kick from the base of the scrum was something that he had yeah. to a team. Well, they, they, they pretty much beat England. I think it was 89, yeah. the year after the Triple Crown, purely because, um, you know, Rob Jones just kicked the leather off the ball and pinned them back. You know, they couldn't get a foothold in the game. And you could argue England had the better side that year, but yeah, just for the tactical nous of Robert Jones. And he was obviously hard as nails because uh, he pretty much beat up Nick Farr Jones in uh, in 89 on that Lions tour fantastic scrap that is isn't it again iconic bit of footage that um, yeah good stuff and a, and a, and a fine choice uh, who is in the running for outside half I, I'm, I'm at the stage now I'm looking at combinations um, so I think it's it's got to be Jiffy it's got to be Jiffy because that partnership for Wales you know in an era where often there wasn't much to celebrate the two of them together in tandem you know they looked quite similar they had the same mullet mm-hmm. at one point they had the same same kind of Swansea Gwendryth Valley moustache um, they just worked in tandem they were almost telepathic understanding with one another you know similar of stature quite diminutive players elusive players um, but you know Jiffy on his day I I, I, I did chuck in Colin Stevens. Um, you know, as mentioned earlier, his partnership with Rupert Moon, a very underrated player, probably of the same mould, you know, as Jiffy and Phil Bennett, kind of a bit of a hot stepper. Um, and weirdly, another contender, even though at the time I hated him, purely from a supporter's point of view, Andrew Mertens. Yeah. He was a strong contender. You know, there was something about Mertens, whether it was his hair, that just really irritated me. And and again, the fact that every time Wales played New Zealand, we got spanked. And Mertens, he almost had this kind of insouciant sort of smug vibe going on that made me want to heap all the blame directly on his shoulders. But I've since learned, you know, I've grown up a little bit and realised that, you know, it's just, it's that irrational hatred that you often target towards players on the opposite side. And actually, he was a fantastic, fly half and a and an even better bloke you know he is so self-deprecating considering he achieved what he achieved and he played in in some of the best all-black sides that have ever graced the turf all he does is slag himself off and I, I actually find that really endearing you know he's he's not remotely egotistical which is the opposite of what I considered him to be as a player so so I kind of wanted to include him but for the reasons I've I've outlined it's it's got to be a jiffy Rob Jones combination of nine and ten for me. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful uh, a wonderful prospect, and again, the beauty of, uh, of of kind of playing this game is you can you can reunite these kind of old um, you know it's it's almost like getting the you know 
getting the Smiths back together for uh, for one last time in their in their prime, you know, before Morrissey was mm-hmm. a racist. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and you kind of, you know, you get this 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 opportunity to look at uh, these fantastic things. And you're right, it's a very iconic lineup of uh, of Robert Jones and uh, and Jiffy at ten. Um, obviously, you, you you know both those guys. Uh, you know both those guys very well. And um, you know, has, has that has that played a part in it as well? Because you happen to know, you know, what they're what they're both like uh, off the pitch too. You know, I'd, I'd probably have picked them. Anyway, if if I never met them in my life, because that probably is the, for me, that was my earliest rugby memories of being on the terraces at Stradley Park. Mm. My earliest international memories are probably 86, 85, 86, 87. You know, the first World Cup, Thorburn's record-breaking kick in 86, first World Cup, the Triple Crown and the, you know, near Grand Slam in uh, in 88. Um that was when I, I was first, my eyes were opened to the, you know, the beauty of, of rugby union. And, and I, it's funny, isn't it? I, like we've all been doing zoom quizzes over this period, haven't we? And I, I did one the other night and there was like a contemporary sports round. And then there was a round from the question of sport board game, 1987. And I got full marks on that round. Whereas I was really sketchy on, contemporary sport I got the rugby questions right but I struggled on so many of the others and it's it's funny isn't it how the formative period in your life you remember things in in such clarity such vivid detail and you remember names places plays and that period you know late 80s early 90s is just crystallized in my memory you know you asked me who scored Wales's last try and this Six Nations just gone I'd really have to rack my brains if you ask me, you know, to name individual plays from that campaign, you know, Wales against England or England Wales at Twickenham and Adrian Hadley's two tries, or against Scotland in Cardiff, you know, with Jiffy's two drop goals and the the grubber through when he skinned Derek White or Yian Evans's Merlin the Magician try, they're, they're all just there at the very front of my mind. So I think for that reason, you know, whether I'd whether I knew them or not, those guys just always hold a special place in my heart. Just don't tell them. Oh, that, that's it. If it's uh, if it's any consolation, I have texted Rob Jones a couple of times <laughs> about coming on, and he's never replied. So I don't think there's any danger of him listening. Right, let's move. On, let's move on to the outside backs. Uh, uh, let's go for let's go for the wingers then. Well, I've mentioned him already. Um, Yian Evans is on my right wing. No, no question whatsoever. He, you know, he was my hero growing up. Because um, you know, I played on the wing when I back in the day when I used to lace up my boots. Um, I think I think Ian says the same I, thing about you, Ross. Does he really? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that, I that, think that, that is that is so heartwarming to, to know. <laughs> it's funny you say that actually, because I worked with him as well. One of my earliest gigs at the BBC was on the now defunct Wales on Saturday program, uh, the sort of sports results program, kind of kind of like their final score yeah. for Wales, and uh, he was the sort of resident rugby pundit at the time. And I remember once approaching him at the the water fountain, and you know, it's like I was sort of nervously rehearsing what to say and hoping he didn't just walk off. And I thought I just don't want to appear like a fawning fan, but he, you know, he genuinely was my hero growing up. And um, as I sort of gingerly approached him, I just remember him looking up towards me, and he just went right, Ross, and walked off, <laughs> and that was it. But 
rather than being disappointed that he didn't stop and talk, I was just landed that he knew my name. You know, he knew who I was. Um, so he has always been, you know, a total hero of mine for all the same re- you know, reasons we've kind of touched upon. I, I, my grandfather was ticket secretary at Stradley Park when I was growing up. Um, so that was, you know, where I went, had my formative rugby experiences. And to watch a Finetti side coached by Gareth Jenkins with attacking rugby running through its DNA. And when you had finishers like Ian Evans playing, it was just like a lesson every week in how to finish off sweeping movements. And, and you know, none more so than that incredible try against Scotland in 88, where he just stepped and stepped and stepped and found gaps and found gaps. Um, and what, what I loved about him perhaps more than anything was how understated his celebrations were. You know, he, he would score the most spectacular try imaginable and there would never be any kind of hubris he'd just get up at the most there'd be a, a clenched fist and that's it and I love that you know the, the sort of <laughs> the modesty that comes with it so uh, you're, so right. me. you're so right with that the moment I fell in love with rugby was the uh, the, the try he scored in 1993 at the Arms Park yes. where he yeah. skins Underwood on Rory the Underwood. side and you know, at that point in time, uh, so my my family moved to London uh, a couple of years before I was born. So the bulk of my family were born in Wales. I was born the wrong side of the seven. And at this point, where I'm starting to you know to discover sport, um, I sat down to watch this this game of rugby with my uh, with my dad and my brother, and they made it abundantly clear the side in red is the side uh, is the side that that you want to win. And when Yian Evans scored that try, that was that was that's the moment that I can I can pinpoint it to. And from that point onwards, I have just been obsessed with uh, with players who pull on that jersey, um, mm-hmm. and and none more so than him for those you know for the however many years he played after that the, the you know the four or five years after that he was just yeah an incredible winger and uh, and you know during a tough time to be a Wales fan as well he uh, he was just this this source of of magic. Yep, hell of a player. Uh, you know, another great bloke as well. You know, they say don't meet your heroes, but he's he's been the ultimate gentleman. You know, every time I've I've come across him in in a work sort of context. So um, yeah, big big up the Ian Evans, and you know, keeps himself in pretty good shape as well. He could probably still do a job. Um, I, so he, I, he's I definitely he, he's on my right wing for sure. Um, again. <laughs> It's, you can't mention the left wing in that 11 jersey without mentioning Jonah, um, who I think was would have been 45 this week. Yeah. Um, had, he, had he not so tragically died, you know, you know, just the, ga- the game changer, absolute game changer. Um, and rugby's only global superstar, if we're honest. You know, that, that World Cup was just out of this world. And it was actually quite scary, wasn't it? Because at that point in time, he was so much bigger and stronger and more powerful than anyone else. It was like, they were, like Will Carling said, you know, the sooner he goes away, the better. Because um, it just didn't seem like there was any way of stopping him. And obviously, the longer rugby was professional and the more time players spent in gyms, he, he no longer was as unique. I mean, st- physiologically, he was still one of the most gifted players to play the game. Um, so I, I'm, I'm loath not to pick Lomu um, but again I, I don't want to be too obvious and the other contenders for me are, are both New Zealanders um, 
one I talk about being on the terraces at Stradi, and I forget exactly when this was. I think it was like early to mid nineties when New Zealand still played their tour matches against the clubs. And I remember going down to Stradi Park and with my dad, and New Zealand would come into town, and you know I'd been raised on the folklore of um, nine three nineteen seventy two obviously with my mum's cousin having played in that game, you know, that was a very, very obvious touch point for me. And in my sort of young, naive ways, I went along to Stradley Park on this occasion thinking, I'm going to see history repeat itself. And we got absolutely thumped that day. And I was on the side of the pitch where Wayne Proctor was marking Jeff Wilson. Mm. And now, like I say, Looking back on some of those other games I've mentioned, well, I remember any everything in crystal clarity. All I can remember about that day is just seeing this shock of blonde hair just flashing past me every 10, 15 minutes. I think he scored four tries that day, Jeff Wilson. He was just an absolute tour de force. You know, every time he got the ball on the wing, his combination of pace, footwork, strength and, and vision, you know, knowing where the try line was, was, was unparalleled. And poor old Wayne Proctor, I think it was Wayne Proctor. He just, he just had one of those days where he was chasing shadows all afternoon. Um, ironically, you know, I, I remember J.F. Wilson as being this, having this shock of blonde hair. He's totally bald now. Um, so that's long gone. But, um, and, he, and he's a very accomplished presenter over in, in New Zealand now as well. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. He sort of fronts up the coverage there. Uh, did so on the on the Lions tour. So he, him, and Lomu were right up there. But I've gone, I've gone for someone who perhaps didn't get the same credit that those do. Although you know, very very talented and celebrated player in his own right. Dougie Howlett is going to oh, be my left wing. Yes, what a player! Just absolute Rolls Royce of a player, and he almost he's, he reminds me of someone like Federer. In tennis, he never looked flustered. He never seemed to sweat, never seemed tired. You know, you never saw him with his, his hands on his knees, taking gulp full, gulpfuls of air. He just always seemed to be almost serene. You know, he'd float around the pitch. He'd always seem to be in the right place at the right time. You know, he had the kind of work ethic of, of like, a, you know, like a Chris Ashton chasing, always following where the ball was going rather than sticking out on his wing. But he never seemed tired he just he kept on going you know this engine purring scored some fantastic tries um so even though you know he doesn't have the maybe the pulling power of a Lama or a Wilson for me Dougie Howlett's getting in my side yeah a beautiful beautiful player right what about the sensors well I've gone for another combination um and we're going back to 97 into South Africa, if we may. Um, oh, and we I've may. just got to have, I've got, I've got to have Gibbs and Guscott. Just the dream combination. Um, you know, I, I was I caught up with Jerry the other day, actually, for something else I've been working on recently. And uh, he was, he was saying that him and Gibbs had a telepathy that he didn't have with Carling. You know, Guscott and Carling were so long celebrated as that English centre partnership that won those Grand Slams in the early 90s. And the assumption was, you know, that they were the ultimate, they had the ultimate chemistry. But Jerry was saying, actually, with Scott, there was something magical there that they knew what the other one was going to do before he did it. And 
the way they were so different, but the, they blended so well. You know, that's, that's the beauty of a midfield partnership that clicks, isn't it? You had the the blunt instrument of Scott Gibbs, especially on that tour, you know, just running those hard lines, relishing the contact, you know, bouncing off Osduran, taunting the South African back row, encouraging them to to run at him. And then you had Gus Scott, who, again, much like um, Andrew Mertens, when I was a young fan, I couldn't stand him because inevitably he was carving up the Welsh midfield. And I never looked beyond that. I never appreciated the majesty of the way he played. But now, obviously, with hindsight, I, I can do that. And it's, you look at him play, it's like poetry. He was so graceful. His balance, his speed, his acceleration off the mark. And he had the full box of tricks. You know, he was, he was, he could probably have been a professional footballer. He was such a talented ball player. Um, and I just love that combination. You know, you have literally got the, the blunt force and the rapier working it's, in perfect tandem. It's very interesting there. You mentioned um, the, the, that combination playing together because everyone instantly remembers 1987. But again, 93. Carling and Gusket yeah. started the first test and it, well, supposedly famous again. I know my memory of that is a bit shadier, but it didn't fire. Um, as you know, as Carling never had a, his best time in a red shirt. And then the next two tests was was Gibbs and Gusket. And it, I think mm-hmm. it's kind of forgotten that um, that, that partnership kind of uh, had its origins four years prior to the 97 tour where they were, they were just absolutely imperious. Yeah, that, that's where the partnership began. You know, there was there was one try Gus got scored on that um, tour as well, where, where Gibbs put him away. You know, Gibbs did the hard yards, sucked in some defenders, offloaded to Gus got, and Gus got just took off. In my memory, it was about sixty yards. It may not have been that long, but just with that mazy running style of his, you know, almost almost angling backwards, he was that laid back, a bit like similar to a Henson. You know, Henson didn't have Gus Scott's speed, but that same languid, casual style. Um, he was just, well, he was the prince of centres, wasn't he? Um, and yeah, it's, you know, alone he would have been a brilliant outside centre in in this team, but in combination with with Gibbs, it's irresistible. And and, and there were so many contenders in, in the, that position, you know, even, even just from a Welsh perspective, you know, it's, it seems weird not to consider Jamie Roberts in that, 12 shirt considering he won 94 caps I think he was in that position um, and you know Brian Driscoll, an obvious contender for the best 13 of all time Conrad Smith um, but I just think those two in tandem were just poetry in motion couldn't, uh, couldn't agree more. Right, you've got one space left in the side and it is, uh, again, I always think it's a glamour position fullback. I think if you have a, 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 you know, a fullback can be a real rock and roll position and I know you're a big music lover. Please tell me you've gone for a rock and roll fullback. <laughs> I, th- I think he definitely fits the definition of a rock and roll fullback, although probably playing in a, in a sort of pub band in a <laughs> New Zealand backwater rather than, than in Wembley Arena. Um, Obviously, I wanted to put Cullen in yeah. for, for obvious reasons. Unbelievable rugby player, but you know, everyone's going to put Cullen in or, or JPR for, for obvious reasons. So I have I have gone um, probably modelled himself a little bit on JPR where the the lid was concerned, but harking back to that finetti side of the nineties that I mentioned earlier. That's Matt Cardi. 
It's Matt Cardi, the screaming skull, <laughs> with his corrugated uh, ginger hair flowing in the wind. Uh, and, and, you know, one cat wonder for Wales. Um, could possibly have had more, but it obviously happened in the wake of the whole Granny Gate saga. And uh, I love this piece of trivia about Matt Cardi. And I, I've, I've often wondered if, it, if it's apocryphal, because it's been told so many times, it may actually be bollocks. But when after Granny Gate and Shane Howarth and Brett Singerson were, were deemed not to be eligible, the WIU suddenly tightened up its regulations mm. and started checking documents more than they, well, they hadn't up until that point. And um, Matt Cardi was asked, you know, what his eligibility was. And apparently it was that his grandmother had been born in Monmouthshire. So all well and good, you know, he's, he's, he's therefore eligible um, on, on the grandparents' rule. But someone then dug a little further. And obviously the Monmouthshire border which borders England, has shifted over the years. And at that point in time, the village that Matt Cardi's grandmother was born and raised in was within Wales. But apparently, when she was born, it was on the English side of the border. So the border has shifted. I don't think anyone knew... Well, where does that leave it? You know, is it where it is now or where it was then? Because she would technically have been born in England... Something ridiculous like that. And, and I, in my mind over the years, that's the reason he got no more caps because they thought, oh, look, we got so much strife over there, the Howarth and Singleton thing, let's just leave it there. Um, so he had, that, he had that one game for Wales against Scotland. But, you know, he, he was massively underrated. You know, you, in that Scarlet's team, again, you know, the Gareth Jenkins ethos of running the ball from everywhere. He had license to just attack that line. Um, and he was a cracking player. Cracking player. So, um, so he, he inexplicably has displaced both Christian Cullen and JPR Williams in my 15. And, uh, and I'm, not gonna, I'm not sorry about it. No, n- neither, neither should you be. It's your side, Ross. And uh, <laughs> just very quickly to finish uh, on the, uh, the kind of the, the question of bias. Now, I instantly, having chatted to you before, I know how much, uh, how much you, you loved watching Clinethi growing up. And I, I kind of thought this side would be would be full of um, would be full of uh, the the Turk stars of the of the nineties and the eighties, and you've picked you pick quite a few, but you've done a good job. The interesting thing I'm noticing here is there's a bit of a trend of Clenethy players who've also played for Newport, and I wonder whether this was you trying to butter <laughs> me up here or almost rub it in, because because Chris Wyatt played his best rugby in a red, and I always remember being gutted thinking I'd love to see him play more in black and amber. Matt Cardi had a season with uh, with Newport, and he did, and Barry Llewellyn as well. He did, yeah. He was he studied in Newport. He was at Newport Technical College, so yeah, he's he's a bit of a cult hero down there as well. So uh, and, do you know what? I hadn't noticed that, but there's, maybe there's some sort of subconscious, subliminal Newport worship going on there. Well, the good thing about Wyatt is, although he was synonymous with the Scarlets, he never lost his Newport accent. Uh, and still to this day, I, I went out to see him in Axon Provence a couple of years ago, where he was still playing at that time. And he still sounded as Newport as ever. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure he's very proud of his black and amber roots and you can never I, take that away from him. I think he preferred drinking in Newport as well, I, uh, I have to say. <laughs> so, uh, right, a wonderful team you picked there, Ross. I can't even remember if I mentioned this to you, but you also get the privilege of choosing the opposition, the kit and the stadium. 
that this uh, fictional game takes place in. Now, I'm guessing, oh, wow. the, I'm guessing the stadium is a fairly easy pick for you. Um, well, let's let's take it back down to Jade Stadium, shall we, in honour of Josh Cromfeld? Oh, why not? Um, love beautiful part of the world. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll do that. We'll take it down there um, on New Zealand South Island, and I. With a kit, I, we we did this thing at the start of the lockdown with the Pro Fourteen, where we uh, we did this hashtag show us your shirts. Yeah, yeah. yeah and my um my wife insisted not that long ago that I cull my jersey collection because it was beginning to um spill out of every every draw going. So um I've got very few left, sadly. But the one I refused to part with was was my Fanethly Ray Gravel shirt from the early 80s, as worn by the great man himself. Um, and it's your classic heavy cotton Adidas, three stripes down the arm, three feathers on one breast, old school Adidas logo on the other, and nothing else. No sponsors, no advertising, just a classic cotton jersey. And not too baggy either, considering the era. Um, so I will kit them out in something similar if I may you may um, and as for the opposition well they'd have to be fairly tasty wouldn't they because I'm looking at this team now and it's even though there's some maverick picks in there I think it would be a handful for anyone I'd say there are some real bastards in the pack there it has to be said you know, yeah in a, in a good way yeah in a, in a good way and some some hot steppers in the backs as well so why don't we time travel and take on the Kiwi side of 2017. And if my side wins, we'll retrospectively give that series to the Lions. I love it. Why that? not? I think that's uh, that's absolutely perfect. And they're even they're even wearing a they're even wearing a red jersey as well. Ross, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you again. Thanks very much for picking your uh, your Dream 15. And uh, and yeah, as uh, as you mentioned, it's, it, this wasn't a, a shameless plug fest. But I've read both those books and they are fantastic. So if anyone listening wants uh, wants to find a way to alleviate a bit of boredom during the lockdown, you could do a lot worse than uh, than, than looking uh, looking out for Ross's books. You're a gentleman, sir. Much appreciated. Thanks very much, Ross. Chat to you soon. Cheers, mate. All the best. Sports Social Podcast Network.